All right, so we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. So just to give a recap again, so far in the story, we've seen Jesus ascend to heaven to the throne of the right hand of God, and he's now ruling the nations as king of the world, and the church has given Jesus' spirit to proclaim the gospel all throughout the world, right? And we see these amazing things happen, baptisms, conversions, healings, confrontations with the principalities and powers. And I want to highlight two things before we jump into the actual text. And again, it's Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. So first thing I want you to notice about the story so far is that the character focus of Acts is shifting as we move throughout the book. And I hope that you see that as we've been going through these last few weeks. So early on, we have a very tight focus on the 12 apostles, right? And particularly Peter and John. Peter is the one who preaches the first sermon of the church where 3,000 people are converted. And it seems like Peter and John are always together, healing people, preaching in the temple, disciplining the church, confronting the Jewish elders who are asking them why they're doing all these things. But then in Acts chapter 6, we start to see more characters introduced, more leaders introduced. Because Peter and John and all the other apostles are Hebrew-speaking Jews, and we talked about this for a few uh, Sundays. They're Hebrew-speaking Jews, but as they're preaching, Greek-speaking Jews, who are culturally very different, start to convert as well. And so they start to appoint some Greek-speaking leaders. And among them are, so they appoint seven of these leaders called deacons. And two of those guys are named Stephen and Philip. And in Acts chapter 7, we read how Stephen is arrested and brought before the Jewish rulers and how he explains how Jesus is the true fulfillment of the law, right, and the temple, and that the Jewish law and temple are just incomplete signposts pointing to the true reality that's in Jesus. And the Jews become so angry that they stone Stephen to death. And as Stephen is dying, like Jesus, what are his last words? His last words are, Father, forgive them. He says, Lord Jesus, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, echoing what Jesus said on the cross. And it shows how Stephen, in following King Jesus, has has been transformed into a Christ-like person. And we talked about that. And in that story of the execution of Stephen, we're introduced to this character named Saul, So this is another new character. He's an enemy of the church, but we all know him as Paul, the writer of many of the letters in the New Testament. So obviously later on, he becomes a great leader in the church. And that's going to be actually next week, Acts chapter 9. We talk about that transformation in Paul's life. But at this point, Saul is still an enemy of the church. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we read how after the killing of Stephen, he oversees a systematic persecution against the church where he starts finding believers and dragging them off to prison uh, and basically overseeing their executions as well. So because of Saul's persecution, a lot of the church leaders begin to scatter from Jerusalem. That's what we talked about last week. And in particular, we started to pick up the story of one of the other Greek-speaking Jewish deacons. His name was Philip. Right? And Philip preached the gospel to the Samaritans. That's what we talked about last week. And many of them were converted and saved. And so today we're going to be looking at the story of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. So that's the first thing I want to highlight, just the progression of focus in the book of Acts. That's something that you're going to see. There's a, a changing cast of characters. It starts off with the 12 apostles, but it's not contained with just with them. It starts off with Peter and John, but then it starts exploding on to Philip and Stephen. And now this guy named Saul, who we know as Paul. And the second point I want to bring out is 
look at what God is doing as the cast of characters expands. There's a pattern of extending outward inclusion. It's like God's arms are reaching out from Jerusalem through the 12 apostles to gradually embrace more and more of the different peoples of the world in his embrace. So you start with the early church. Acts 1 tells us there were about 120 followers there. That, then that grows to include all the Jews of the diaspora, which are the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And then it becomes the Samaritans. So actually that passage um, that Sharon read earlier about Ezekiel is about how the Israelites... In the Old Testament, the Israelites are broken into two, and this seems like a huge failure. But God promises in Ezekiel that he's going to bring all the people, the scattered peoples of the Israelites, back together. And in Acts, this is how God is starting to fulfill that promise, because the Samaritans are descendants of some of the northern tribes of Israelites, but they've intermarried with other peoples. That's why the Jews hate them. Uh, But now the Samaritans are being brought back into fellowship with the Jewish Christians. That's what we see going on. Uh, And now, in this chapter, we see how God is moving, not just within sort of the Jewish-Israelite family, but even towards the Africans, the Ethiopians. That's what Ethiopians are, black African, to include him in his embrace. And that's the trajectory of the book of Acts. What starts with Jesus of Nazareth and a small band of people ends up going to cover all the world. And by the end of the book, the enemy of the church, Paul, is a servant of the church, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ at the heart of the empire that is trying to destroy Jesus. So that's the trajectory of the book. And we know that this gospel, this announcement that Jesus is Lord, ended up conquering the world. Not by force, the way the Jews had thought, not through political power, but by the power of the cross and the resurrection. The power of co-suffering love that leads to new life. So Israel had believed it needed purity in order to accomplish the mission of God for the world. To be kept apart and pure and following all these uh, regulations and rules that kept it separate from the rest of the peoples of the world. But what Israel hadn't realized is that what God was doing was he was using Israel to produce the one pure human life, Jesus Christ, through whom he was going to purify everyone. And that's why many of the Jews are surprised and shocked by what the apostles are doing, because they're breaking all these rules. That's why they're offended by what's happening. Whether you're Greek or Jewish or Malayali or Tamil or Arab or British or African, all of us are being brought together into the one family of God. That's what's happening. And this is what God has always wanted. But we see that God and the Holy Spirit is not forcing that realization on the church immediately. And that's what we talked about last Sunday. God is wild, right? But he leads people through small steps. It's only after taking a few of those steps with God in faith that we can, after a while, start to look back and be like, wow, I have no idea how I got to this place of grace uh, through this storm that I was in, but God is leading me through it. So these people believe that they need to be kept separate from them, but God, through small steps, is leading them into union with all the other types of people. Uh, so with all that said, just wanted to put that in mind. Uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. So starting with verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandek, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. 
So first of all, notice that uh, what the Lord is saying to Philip through the angel doesn't seem to make sense. There's nothing between Jerusalem and Gaza. It's actually like a deserted road. So the angel of the Lord is telling Philip, go to this desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza. There's nothing there. Uh, sometimes that's what God asks us into. He asks us to follow roads that don't seem to hold any immediate promise. And the question you have to ask yourself is, do you trust the Lord to lead you in that moment? So that's the first thing I just want you to notice in that moment. The second thing is, who is the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Do you guys know what Ethiopians are? Do you guys know what eunuchs are? Uh, Kandak or Candace in some other translations, it seems to be the queen of the Ethiopians, and the eunuch is a high official in her court, sort of the equivalent of our secretary of the treasury. He's in charge of the money in the kingdom of Ethiopia. And that's Ethiopia, for those of you who don't know, is a, a nation on the eastern side of the continent of Africa, kind of south of Egypt. Uh, and eunuchs are often slaves who at a young age were castrated. That means that they're, the, they're usually males, male genitals were mutilated uh, so that they cannot have children. The reason why this is done is, so, is because they cannot have children, the thought is they will be totally loyal to the ruling power, to the ruling family. They have no other interests. They're not trying to, you know, maybe take a little cut of the money for their own family because they, they don't have the ability to have a family. They're totally loyal to the royal family, and that's why they're castrated. And again, oftentimes they're slaves, so they were castrated at a young age. The third point I want to highlight is that this Ethiopian eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So why would an Ethiopian, a black African, be coming to Jerusalem to worship? This tells us something about this guy. He's a spiritual seeker. Something in his life is empty, and he's searching. He's traveling hundreds of miles to find more meaning. But why Jerusalem? Now, traditionally, the Ethiopian church tells us that uh, the Jewish faith, well, the Israelite faith, faith in the god Yahweh, came to Ethiopia through the Queen of Sheba, who a long, long time before this story had visited Solomon to talk uh, about his wisdom to, because she had heard of his reputation for wisdom. So somehow there's a tradition all the way in Ethiopia of worshiping Yahweh. And this eunuch somehow seems to be caught up in that tradition. That's one hypothesis at least. So this could be the, the reason, but whatever the reason, we know that he was not satisfied worshiping in Ethiopia. He wanted to travel all the way to Jerusalem to see if he could really experience the presence of God. So obviously, again, he's seeking something. He's, he's, he's looking for something. But this is the tragic part where we have to read between the lines of what is pre presented to us in Scripture. Because the fact is, a eunuch under the temple laws we know would not be allowed to enter into the temple of Jerusalem. So Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 1 to 3 and Leviticus chapter 21 verses 18 to 20 make it very clear that eunuchs specifically can't enter into God's presence in the temple because they're considered blemished or impure because of their physical deformity, because they've been castrated. Uh, and so we can assume that this Ethiopian eunuch traveled all this way to get to the temple. And just imagine that he's spent days and days on the road. And then when he finally arrives at the temple, he's not allowed to go inside to worship God. And so he's excluded. And he begins the long journey home. And he's puzzled. He's confused. He's, he's wondering 
what this means for him. And so he turns to the Hebrew scriptures and has it read. Now, just a side note, this guy obviously has to be very wealthy to own a copy of the Hebrew scriptures. This is before the printing press, right? So to have anything written, that means you have to write it by hand. And so it's very, very expensive to own a copy of the entire Hebrew scriptures. But he has one. And he must be educated because he's able to read it. And the practice back then, you know, this practice we have now of reading things in our minds, that's not how people, ancient peoples read. They used to read things aloud. So he's reading it aloud, or either he's reading it aloud or a servant is reading it to him. But he's turning to the Hebrew scriptures to understand who this God is and why he would not be included to the temple. If, and if that's the case, then what that means for his future and what that means uh, for the purpose of his life. So then let's turn to verse 29. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Okay, so let's pause there again. So the spirit says, all right, Philip, go up to the chariot where you hear this guy reading. Philip runs up to the chariot and he hears the man reading Isaiah aloud. And he asks, do you get what you're reading? And the eunuch says a very wise thing, I think. He, even in his confusion, he understands something that's very difficult for us modern people to understand. And that's that he cannot understand scripture on his own. That he needs it to be explained to him by someone who is practicing the faith. Now, in our very individualistic culture, uh, we are allergic to that kind of thought, that someone ha something has to be explained to us. Uh, and I think, particularly in the, in the church even, there's a skepticism of authority. There's a skepticism of people saying, this is what this means. And, and the, there are reasons for that. That's because people have lost their credibility in the church. Uh, but scripture is a story that can only be rightly interpreted by the body of witnesses that Christ has called to himself through the Spirit. Apart from the church, scripture is nonsense. And I don't say that lightly. It's arrogant for us to think that we can, with our own cultural assumptions and blinders, interpret scripture on our own. God has to tell us what it means. And that's why the Holy Spirit sends Philip, sends someone who is in community with God, running up to the chariot, he represents the church, the community of faith that is going to make faith sensible to us. So let's pick up again in verse 32. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? himself or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So first of all, this is kind of poignant because as the eunuch is reading it, he must be thinking of his own experience of castration. A sheep led to the, sh to the slaughter. Uh, shearers deprived of justice no descendants to speak of. This passage must be resonating with the eunuch because like the eunuch, the prophet is speaking of someone who is unable to have a family, who is unable, and, and the family in ancient times was the way to have meaning, the way to have purpose, the way to know that your life meant something. And so that's what leads to his question to Philip. Who is the prophet speaking of, himself or someone else? He's emotionally invested in the passage. That 
those verses that the eunuch is reading are actually from Isaiah chapter 53, the song of the suffering servant. And there are two streams of messianic uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. One speaks of the new Davidic king who's coming to restore Israel. And then another stream speaks of the suffering servant who suffers for the sake of his people and dies in their place so as to redeem them, to win them back from the powers of evil. That's what's talked about in Isaiah chapter 53. This is basically the entire uh, reasoning behind the idea of atonement. We all long for the world to be good, for peace, joy, and justice to be in the world. But something causes all human beings, even though this is what we desire, to instead wreak havoc and destruction upon ourselves and upon one another. That's the entire story of the Old Testament. Our inability to create the good world that we all long for. And we say that this is the result of evil, the result of sin in our hearts. And the Jews, the Israelites, constructed a, a complex system of purity laws in order to stay in right relationship with Yahweh. Because through that relationship, they believed the good world we all longed for would come. Uh, and some of those rules include things like excluding those who are deemed to be imperfect. So people of other races and people who have physical deformities, people who are crippled, people who are castrated like the eunuchs, as corruptions of physical nature. And other of these rules include the concept of sacrifice, what's called atonement, where an animal is killed as an offering to God for the forgiveness of sins in the human heart. But Isaiah actually condemns the Israelites throughout the book because despite all their purity rules and despite all their sacrifices, they're still not creating the good world that is supposed to be the result, uh, that God had created us for. They still oppress the weak. They still ignored the hungry. They still persecuted the poor. Instead of being a people who knew they were forgiven because of God's love and grace, and so transformed into people who show other people love and grace, instead they showed that they still were enslaved to the corruption that's in all human hearts. We are enslaved to sin. Our slavery to sin is so complete that no one of us can fulfill God's righteousness. None of us can be the perfect human beings that God created us to be. But Isaiah foresaw a day when a new king from the line of David would arise to deal with evil. And this king would usher in a new reign of glory, but he would do it in a surprising way. The king would become a servant, and not just serve, but suffer and die for the sake of his people, and offer his life as a sacrifice. That's the promise that Jesus believed that he was fulfilling. He believed he was playing the role of both of the Davidic king and the suffering servant the king of Israel suffering on a cross. And that's why Jesus, when he's asked why he came, quotes from Isaiah. He says, the son of man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to the biblical idea of atonement. But it doesn't just end there. Uh, if you continue through the book of Isaiah, you get to Isaiah chapter 56 and the following chapters. And that shows the results of the suffering servant. And the result is a new relationship with God, with all people. Now it's not just limited to the Jews. Now it's not just limited to the so-called pure. It now includes the impure, because now we realize that all of us are impure. And the only pure one was actually the suffering servant. So now Isaiah 56 says, eunuchs are included in the new kingdom. So 
quoting from Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 4, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who obey my laws, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. The result of the suffering servant is a new family united to God in a fresh way where the old categories of status and belonging are totally broken through. Uh, The eunuch can now receive a memorial and a blessing from God greater than sons and daughters. And that's what Philip preaches to the eunuch. He says he, starting with that story, explains the story of Jesus Christ, how it's a fulfillment of the entire Old Testament prophecy. Jesus died unjustly, but three days later, he was raised from the dead. God vindicated his life as the means for, rec- for reconciliation with all the world. And now all of us who are united in baptism to Jesus are the true temple. Now the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't need to be excluded from God's presence. By being united to Christ, he embodies Christ's presence. By being united to Christ, we participate in the very life of God. You can never be excluded again. And that's what leads us to verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. This is the Ethiopian eunuch's question. After being rejected at the temple and after hearing the story of Christ, what can stand in the way now of me being united to God? of being baptized? And the answer is nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not death or famine or hardship or opposition or sword. This is the God who came to justify the ungodly, who who came to pour out love for the forgotten, to purify the impure, to love and save and deliver those who hated him. Nothing can stop him from delivering his love and pouring out his love upon his people. That is the message of the gospel that Jesus is Lord. This world is being renewed. It's being rejuvenated with the spirit of God and recreated so that every blemish and imperfection will be perfected and nothing will stop him. Not all the human systems of exclusion and power and hierarchy and rules and regulations and all the justifications for why you are in and you are out, they're broken through. God has arrived in King Jesus to show us the depths of his commitment to us and for us. God's love is unconditional and redemptive and transformative. So what can stand in the way of the Ethiopian eunuch's baptism? What can stand in the way of God's love? Nothing. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Why is the eunuch rejoicing? The eunuch is rejoicing because whereas before he was trying to identify a sense of worth in something that he couldn't ever grasp, he's not able to have a family, which is a huge deal in the ancient world. He's not able to have kids. He's not able to have the exclusive, uh, the, the external excuse me, uh, markers of belonging by going into the Jewish temple to worship. But now he has a sense of worth 
because of the suffering servant who, sh- who is God himself, who showed the depths of his commitment to the eunuch. And this is the same truth that is true for all of us and can give us a, a reason for rejoicing even when we feel worthless. So let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just pray that we lay a hold of that truth, that even in our times of insecurity, even in our times of failing and weakness uh, and uncertainty, you have poured out your love upon us. You show us through the, the death of your son on the cross how much you love us, Father. Lord, help that to be real to us. Help that to move us. Let that not just be an abstract idea in our minds, but something that actually uh, grabs us by the shoulders and shakes us up and changes the way that we view ourselves and our places in the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and say the Apostles' Creed.